And now, a Blaze Media podcast. stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This of course is the show where you come for the accent and today you're coming for the solutions. If you're just listening today and you missed last week's show, please, please go back and listen to it before you listen to the solutions. Last week, we were joined by Justin Haskins and we did a deep dive into the Great Recess, how the fear from coronavirus and climate change is trying to bring about a great reset of capitalism, how that's going to be funded through government printing of money and theories like modern monetary theory, and then basically what the Great Reset is, including what an ESG score is. Please go back and listen to it. Please share it with your family and friends. But today is the show I've been most looking forward to. Because as much as I love talking about tyrannical governments and tyranny, I love talking about freedom and solutions a whole lot more. And I'm once again joined by Justin Haskins, who is uh, works at the Heartland Institute. He has co-authored a book with my boss, Glenn Beck, called The Great Reset. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be back with you. So I'm not going to lie, this is the part of the show I've been most looking forward to talking to you about, Justin, because I get talking about tyranny, and it's so important that we do and we highlight the enemy and we clearly call it out, but I think so many times we get focused just on tyranny, and I, I love opportunity, and I love the understanding that, yes, when times are bad, and the Great Reset is the most troubling thing I've probably ever read, and all the stuff that can go along with it and where it can go is endless, but every time there's a crisis or every time there's something bad or some disappointment, it's always an opportunity, an opportunity being the key word, to grow, to learn, and to be better. And the Great Reset, as bad as it is and as scary as it is, it does provide a massive opportunity. So I'm a public speaker. I'm a keynote speaker. I've been doing this show for years. And I, would en- I engage with people on social media privately and publicly. And I would discuss different things with them. And some of my more liberal or left-leaning friends would like okay so john you're talking about this big overarching tyrannical government you know prove it to me and i'd have to go well barack obama as president said this and if you link this to an executive order or you link this to what they're doing in congress or or to what this body or agency is saying and doing behind the scenes and if you join all of these dots together you bingo you'll get exactly what my fear is or what my frustration with the government is We don't have that with the Great Reset. I don't have to join dots for people. I just have to tell them to go to weforum.org. Go Google the World Economic Forum. Go Google Davos. Go Google the Great Reset. It's right there. They're telling you exactly who they are with their propaganda videos, where they're saying you'll eat meat once a week, where they're saying you'll own nothing and be happy. This is a massive opportunity to talk about freedom. Do you agree? Yeah. I think that is a really important opportunity for people. Uh, I mean, you know, for a long, long time, 
you have had to connect all of the dots. And we have known because we know the backgrounds of so many of the players involved that they were there were more there were a lot of key political figures and and people who were involved in activist groups and other things, people who were big donors and people on Wall Street. We knew that there were uh, that there was a there was a different agenda than what they were presenting on the surface. We've known that for a long time, but you're right. It required research. It required lots of time to connect the dots. It required people having an open mind. What makes this so powerful is that they were, I think because of what happened with the pandemic, they felt like people were in a desperate state and were willing to cry out for just radical change, that they were honest. They were honest in a way that they're normally not. And that really is an advantage because now forever, I don't have to wonder whether or not I'm connecting the dots correctly or whatever. I don't have to. All I have to do is show you a mountain of quotes from people coming directly from the source saying, yes, we're going to rework society. Yes, we want to rewrite the social contract. Yes, we need to push the reset button on the world. Yes, we want to rebalance economies, not just within the economy, but between countries. Uh, these kinds of things where they talk about changing humanity and doing all of this stuff, they're very, very, very open about it. And that's what makes it such a powerful idea. Honestly, I don't know if I could have, I don't know if we would have written a book, Glenn and I, about it if we didn't have so many quotes, not because we wouldn't have believed it because there's plenty of evidence beneath the surface, but because I don't think anyone else would have believed it. (laughs) It's the quotes that really drive home the point. Yes, the quotes are unbelievable, and as we spoke about last week, there's 511 footnotes in this book, so go check out the quotes. They really do drive home your point, Justin. But I also think it's an opportunity for people on our side who believe in the Constitution, who believe in the idea of America, the the real freedom, because honestly, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, America for a while have gotten comfortable. You know, when I would go out and warn about totalitarian governments, to even to our own side, and say, look, America, I love you, you're a great country, you're a great nation, your ideas are amazing, you inspired a 5,000-year leap, however, you've strayed too far from the Constitution. You know, the Constitution has been violated on a daily basis. The Bill of Rights has been violated on a daily basis. You're spending way too much money, I think, in some cases, a lot of people just went, yeah, 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 it'll be fine. We're America. We'll survive. You know, you don't need to worry about that. Whereas I think the Great Reset, and I, this is just my opinion, I really think it is pure evil. And I always ask people this, and this is a Christian thing, but it's also a worldwide thing. What defeats pure real evil? Is it mushiness? Is it been a moderate? Is it been a centrist? Is it, is it compromising? Or is it real good? And I think we should use it as an opportunity, if you believe in the idea of America, to go hold up the Great Reset and let's have a battlefield of ideas and say, hey, this is what they want. This is the the, the Great Reset. The ESG scores, you know, all the control, all the tyrannical power, MMT, climate change. But here's what we want. We're for freedom. We're for the individual. We're for opportunity for all. We're not for equity. We're for real equality that all men are created equal. I think it's time that we stop painting in black and white and start painting in in broad pastels. We have the winning message. We just have to start using it. Yeah, totally agree. I think that ultimately the the thing is, I think that most people really do still want to be free. I just don't think that in America, at least, I just think that they don't necessarily 
understand this in the proper context. And they, they don't know enough about the details of it, but they also haven't had it presented to them in the way that you just described, where this really is a choice between these two things. And if they knew that and they understood it, I do think they would make the right choice. But so many of these people have been fooled or, or not even fooled. They, a lot of times they don't even pay attention enough to be fooled. Uh, it's time for people to start taking this stuff seriously. Even people who may not necessarily be interested in politics or they're not interested in policy or they're not interested in history. I get it. But are you interested about the things you can buy at the store down the street? Are you interested about whether or not you are going to be required to have a substance injected into your body? Are you interested in what your kids are learning in school? Are you interested in just basic everyday life? Are you interested in what you're allowed to say on social media? What kinds of things you can see on the internet and can't see? Are you interested in any of these basic freedoms? What your movies look like, what your music sounds like? If you're interested in even any of that at all, you should be paying attention to what's going on here because it is a fundamental choice. We are at, to use a word that comes, a phrase that's used over and over and over again with these great reset people, at an inflection point. We are at an inflection point. We're about to change one way or another. We're either going to go back in the direction of freedom and individual liberty, or we're going to run headlong into tyranny. That's the choice. And it needs to be presented that way. And, and, and the best way to do that is to show them, just use their own words against them, show them that that's the choice and let people decide for themselves what kind of world they want to live in. And I think people will ultimately make the right choice if given the right information. I completely agree. Martin Luther King once had a saying where he spoke about how when the American people are given a choice of real good and real evil, the American people will always choose real good. The problem that I have, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, is it's been a long, long time since America has been given the option of real good. You know, how many times do you see it just in your elections where the line is always, well, it's the lesser of two evils. Well, if it's the lesser of two evils... That's not real good. That might be, you know, one evil is less bad than the other, fine. But there's never an opportunity for the American people, it seems, to ever have a real person or a real idea that they can get behind. And everything has become so political. And this is one of the reasons I finish up my show every week the way I do when I say America is great because Americans are good. It's not about your politics. It's not about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It's about your people. And it needs to get back to that. But we also need to start giving the people a choice. And this is the one thing I find, and I disagree with a lot of people, or I have some, you know, disagreement with some people when I say, you know what, the idea of America, you've stopped sharing that. No many, Not many people today know why America is factually an exceptional nation. You think you're great, you think you're the best, you know, you think you've got the best economy. None of these are reasons why you're exceptional and caused a 5,000 year leap. And we need to start sharing that message. And I say this as someone who is out sharing this message. You know, I, I'm going on a tour, and I've been on a tour since last year, and now that I live here, it's going to be doing it constantly, where I talk about reclaiming America's narrative. That's the, the title of my presentation right now. And I go and I share all this. And I'm not saying I'm the best speaker or the worst speaker, but you know the number one comment I get all the time from people that say, thank you for sharing that. It's been a long time since I've heard America been spoken about that way. And I'm like, there's your problem. 
why does it take an outsider, an Irish guy, to come to your group and to talk about America being an exceptional and unique nation in a factual way, but also in a story format for people to go, why is this, why does that have to take me to come there to make it happen? Surely this should happen on a regular basis. And by the way, I disagree. I remember I've, I've shared this with Glenn as well, where one of the comments he made to me one time where we were talking about things because I was out on the road, and I, he said, well, you know, aren't you only preaching to the choir? It was more of a question than a statement, but he said that, and I'm like, have you seen the choir recently? It needs pre- it needs preaching to. You know, we need to stop looking to other places only. We need to start teaching everyone about American exceptionalism and telling people why they changed the world. And this is a great opportunity to highlight American exceptionalism versus total tyrannical uh, authoritarian 21st century fascism. So the question then becomes, how do we get the American people to believe it? Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, I think what you're doing is a big part of that. I mean, you need to have the people who do believe it be very vocal about it. And there are a lot of people who do believe it that you don't even need to convince. But the point is, they have to convince other people. They have to say it and they have to believe that it's an important thing to say. And, you know, one of the things that's so challenging is that and, and I know this from my personally, Um, you know, my generation especially is very anti-American. Even the ones who are not necessarily anti-freedom is generally anti-American. And it's because the main things that always get focused on are the horrible things that America has done. And it's never the good things. It's always the bad things. You never even hear the other stories. And so even if you know the stories, even if you know, oh yeah, you know, that we World War One and there's World War Two and there's all these you know things that we did the Revolutionary War and you know Civil War freeing the slaves even if you have like a sense of that it's not on the top of your mind all the time because it's not said and really I think that was one of the things that made Donald Trump so popular was he was one of the few politicians who was very openly wrapping himself in the American flag saying. This is a great place and it's gone off the rails a little bit and we need to go back to what made us great. But this is a great country. And there were people who felt emboldened by saying, yeah, I, I love being an American. I, I think America is a great place. And that message is just not it's not said. And if it's not said, then people are not going to say it to others. And if they're not saying it to others, those people will never even think it. Because they're never confronted with that idea. I mean, really, when you think about it, if you've been told your whole life, even if you're not anti-American per se, and you're just a person who doesn't even really pay attention, if no one says to you that America is great, why would you even ask yourself the question? You just would, most of the messaging you get from the culture is that it's bad. It's been a bad place. And so, and the, and the left needs it to be a bad place because that's the only way to destroy the foundation of it. Because if the foundation is good and things have been good and, and, and the country has developed in a positive way, then why are we destroying the foundation? But if the country is inherently awful and rotten and bad, then it makes sense. That's why the whole concept of systemic problems, systemic racism, systemic you know, um, sexism, et cetera, is so important. Because if the system is inherently bad, then destroy the system. See, that's the natural, logical end game to that. If the system is inherently great, then uh, you don't destroy it. You might reform it, 
You might change it. You might try to make it better, improve it, but you don't blow it up. So that really is the core issue. And um, I do think this is, it's a messaging problem. The, the right in America, when I say the right, I mean, you know, people who believe in individual liberty in America have always been terrible at messaging for a very long time, <laughs> at least a hundred years. And so we, we need to have those conversations. I think that's an, ex, it's a great point. And I think that people should be making that argument more often. Yes. And we need to start talking to people from a point of humility. And we're trying to encourage them to learn more and to to inspire them to want to learn more about their country. And I think so many times, so many people are doing it from a point of shame point of view. Why? You don't know this? But we also need to acknowledge that those people who know America is an exceptional nation totally need to have those stories shared because as you said if you don't share them they don't get shared from other people and then we forget about them and i'll prove this to you with two stats how many people do you know think of only the people who you think know america is an exceptional nation and ask them how many those people know how many rights is in the first amendment because the answer is five but most people don't know that in fact, someone asked me this question in Texas at an event a couple of weeks ago, and when I answered correctly, and then I named them for them, he says, congratulations, you're in the top 2% of the country who actually know this. How can anyone talk about the Constitution when you don't know how many rights is in the Bill of Rights and you can't name them? But also secondly, and this is where I want to get back to talking to you about your solution. So one of the things I love, in just as a personal thing, is I love ideas. Even if I disagree with them, I love exploring them and, and just thinking about how you can improve them, how you can, you know, change them. And you put forward in, a, in this book, The Great Reset, um, by Glenn Beck and Justin Haskins, an idea. And it's an idea I'm familiar with, but when you put it into practice, it was really, when you put it into practice, you lost me. And the, what is this, this solution? It's called Article the First. Alan, this is the second stat I'm going to prove to you. How many know about Article the First? How many know, people know today, even those who know about American exceptionalism, can tell you how many rights was originally in the Bill of Rights? Because the answer isn't 10. The answer is 12. One of those that lost, that was in the original 12, but never got, never got approved, was a thing called Article the First. What was this? Well, this was a rule on its standard by George Washington. And he said... In the House of Representatives, there should be a representative in the House for every 30,000 people. Now, if you do the maths, that's a lot more than 435. And the argument put forward in this book, Justin, is very persuasive. You had me. I was like, you know what, this is a really good idea because you equated to that it wouldn't be such big districts. You spoke about how there's some districts with a million plus people in them. You know, you spoke and you, you made a great analogy where you compared it more to, you know, instead of like a, a, house, a house race right now, it'd be more like a, a race for mayor. That it's 30,000 people, that you'd have more average people coming in, that there's so many different candidates that lobbyists wouldn't be able to have the same power and that they'd be more men, of the, men and women of the people. And I was like, this is a really good idea. I remember this. Let's think about this. But then you lost me. I'm not going to lie. Why? Because you did the maths for me. You did the maths. If we were to use the George Washington standard, you would go from 435 members of in the House of Representatives to 6,600. When you said that, I'm not going to lie. My brain went, oh, God, no. That's just a nightmare. 
prove me wrong or you know give me the best argument that you have to to make me get back on side <laughs> yeah so what's really interesting is this is one of the one of the in my opinion maybe the greatest idea from the founding era that has been totally lost the direct election of senators uh, which came later on. So originally state legislatures elected senators was also a brilliant idea. Yeah. That was destroyed by the progressive era. I actually really like that idea, but the, um, but this is one of those ones that nobody even talks about or knows about. And it was this, this idea at the time of the founding that how do we determine how many members are in the house? If the house is going to be based on population, well then we got to have a formula. What does the formula look, look like? And one of the ideas was let's, put a minimum number let's put a minimum number on how many representatives uh, how many people can be represented by one representative in the house so that it ensures that the size of the house will always grow um and what ended up happening was it did pass it actually it was poorly written because it was kind of hastily written and it actually did pass uh congress and so it was presented to the states for ratification as an amendment but the states, because they realized there was a problem in it, some of the state legislatures refused to pass it and then they never revised it. And so it never ended up getting ratified. But technically, it's still been passed by the by the by Congress. So it could be theoretically ratified, <laughs> believe it or not, by the states. It would require uh, three fourths ratification, I think, um, if I remember right. So anyway, the point is this. Um, if this were to go into effect. A congressional district would be roughly the size of a small to medium sized uh, city in America, small city, really um, be 30, 40, 50,000, something like that. That's the size of your congressional district. So you're right. You would have several thousand people in Congress as opposed to 435. Um, why do I think that's really good? I think that's really, really, really good because those people would be regular people. They would not be professional politicians. And the reason why is because, one, it's really hard to buy off through lobbying 6,000 some odd people. Number two, it's not hard to win an election in a district with only 30,000 people in it. You only need to win probably a couple thousand votes in order to win that district because uh, not everybody votes, obviously. And you have children and stuff like that. So you have regular people. You'd have a citizen legislature. And you wouldn't have this sort of corrupt career politician thing all bought off. I understand the logistics of it sounds sort of crazy because it's hard to imagine having that many people uh, involved in, in government, right? I, so I come from New Hampshire. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with, with New Hampshire. New Hampshire is a relatively small state. It has about a million people in it or so. Uh, New Hampshire has one of the largest legislative bodies in the entire world based on population. They have over 400 representatives in their House of Representatives at the state level, even though it only has a million people in it. And so the district size there is, is like a couple thousand people or so. And um, they pay them virtually nothing. I think they get paid $2,500 or something like that a year. And they don't have staffs. <laughs> so um, that's what I want. I want, I want a Congress where you pay them $2,500. It's basically the retired people who do it and who and young people who are wildly idealistic. Well, you're getting close to your wish. If you look at the last couple of presidential elections and you look at the House and the Senate at times, they look like a retirement home at the best of times. 
<laughs> yes. Well, and you know what else would run? You would have small business owners run. You would have people who are just regular successful people running. You, you would have a lot of retired people and stuff like that too, I'm sure. You'd have younger people because again, you don't need a lot of money to do it. So wildly idealistic sort of younger people would run, but it would be regular people. And yes, there it would be kind of wonky. How do these people get to Washington to vote? How do they do all this stuff? Maybe there's ways we could do this so that you have uh, a sort of places of voting within each state, as opposed to everyone having to go to Washington. Why do we need that at this point in time? Couldn't you, with all the technology and everything we have, you could do most of the stuff remotely anyway. Maybe there's a way to do it that. But the point is, I believe it's an imperative. I, I think that our system is, is effectively... Uh, an oligarchy. I mean, you have a very small number of people lording over a massive population. The idea that our population has tripled essentially since the law was passed that capped it at 435 representatives in the House is insane. We're, our population is tripled, but the size of our elected representatives that's supposedly based on population has stayed the same. We've actually had some states who at times have lost representatives in their house. They've had fewer representatives gone down because you have to cap it at 435. So if some states are growing a lot more than others, you got to move representatives around. So some people are actually less represented. Some districts are, are going to be over the next several years, you're going to have districts that are probably be a million people where one representative is representing a million people. That is not you can't possibly say that that person is a true representative of that population because the population is too big and that defies the whole purpose of all this. So I understand what you're saying. Logistically, yes, there are problems. Monetarily, yes, you got to figure that out. But could I imagine a system where you have sort of a center of a congressional sort of center where people in that state go to vote and go to do debates and other things? Um, all over the country, maybe regionally or maybe in each state. I don't know how that would work um, so that you don't have to have everybody go to Washington, cut down on the costs, pay them $2,500 a year instead of paying them, you know, full salary with benefits, six figures, all that. Uh, limit their staffs and everything. Do I think we could do that? Yes. Do I think a country would be a lot better off? Absolutely. Is it going to solve all of our problems? No, <laughs> but I do think it will solve a lot of them and make it much, much harder for the system to be corrupt. So I'm a huge fan of that. I want to thank you for asking about that, by the way, because I don't think I've ever, I've got hundreds and hundreds of interviews I've ever done. I don't think anyone has ever brought that up. Well, if it's constitution or it's in the constitution, I'll be the one to bring it up guaranteed. This is what this show is all about. But also as someone who loves ideas, I think one of the things we have a problem in society with today is where we, we tend to put each other in a box and we tend to, well, these are the only solutions and these are the only ways out of the box. When I think of ideas, when I hear ideas from people, even if I disagree with them, I'll always want to discuss them. I always want to rub them off people. And when I read that um, idea in your book with Glenn, I was like, I got to bring this up because, you know, it's it's a great idea. It's one I don't hear talked about at all. I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about it. And I think it's a, an idea of while it has some flaws and I think it needs to be looked at, especially from the financial side of things, you know, with staffers and stuff and, and logistics of voting and things. I think I'm more for it than I am against it. I have some concerns, but you could make it work. Um, and I just think these ideas are things that we need to start discussing, um, whether they, we go for them or not, but we need to discuss them and have all options on the table.
the things I love about this book, Justin, is there's lots of solutions in it. Some of them are simple, some of them are more complex, some of them deserve a lot more discussion, like we discussed earlier on. But there's also one solution in it that I've got major reservations with, and I want to talk to you about it. Anyone who knows me knows what, if they've read the book, The Great Reset by Glenn Beck and Justin Haskins, will know what solution I have a major problem with. I don't believe in labels, but one of the labels I am is a constitutionalist. I believe in the Constitution, and even when it hurts me, even when it goes against everything I want, and there's sometimes where I've got to come on this show and in front of other people kind of going, so argue against that, and I'm like, I wish I could, but the Constitution's rather clear. President can't do it, or Congress can't do it. That's up to the states, and sometimes that hurts. You know, it would be nice to, it would be nice to have a, a big government doing everything. But before I talk to you about the problem I have, I want to share an analogy to lay the groundwork for you. So I'm now living in the great state of Oklahoma. Let's imagine in another world that John is a millionaire and a billionaire. And I don't mean an American millionaire and billionaire. I mean an actual one. And I've got loads of money. And some of the things I do is I lend money to people, to small businesses. I invest. Now, Oklahoma passed a law that said abortion is illegal. Imagine a business comes to me, Planned Parenthood or, you know, a subsidiary or just maybe a totally different company and says, hey, we now have exclusive rights to provide abortions in your state. Um, and here's a business plan. Here's a five-year business plan. Here's our marketing plan. Here's a communication plan. Here's how we're going to be funded. Here's what we're going to use your money for. We want a loan for X amount of money. As someone who is staunchly pro-life, are they entitled to my money or can I politely tell them or maybe not politely tell them, depending on the, the person that's involved, uh, to go pound sand. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question. My argument would be that uh, they should be able to get access to the money, and that you should not deny them access to the money based purely on an ideological reason. If you if you're a publicly traded corporation, however. Uh, I would argue abortion should be illegal, so it doesn't really, in my, in my opinion, it shouldn't matter. But 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 that actually is a good example because I believe, um, and we can get into why you're asking that hypothetical question, of course, but uh, I believe that if there is a practice that society believes is should be illegal, that the that it's up to the government to make that determination, elected representatives of the people to make that determination and to make that illegal not to use the financial system as the tool through which we prohibit things, but we don't actually have to pass any laws in order to do it. So that's why I would, I would make that determination. Now, the reason you're bringing this up is because, of course, in the book, one of the things that I suggest, and Glenn as well, we both strongly believe this, is that rules should be in place that ensure that if you're a not an individual person, but if you're a publicly traded corporation, if you're a, which all these big banks are, uh, if you're a bank serving the public, your financial institution serving the public, uh, you should base your decisions on whether to give loans and financial services on economic reasons, financial reasons, business reasons only, not based on any sort of subjective non-financial standard. Um, and, uh, this is actually a really big thing that we're pushing for in states across the country. There are lots of debates going on in 
about two dozen states, more than two dozen states at this point, between state lawmakers over whether or not we should enact this at the state level and put a rule in place that says, yes, banks should only base decisions on financial criteria, not subjective criteria like ESG scores and other social credit metrics. So your primary reason, I'm guessing that you're opposed to it, is that you don't want the business, you don't want government to tell business how to make decisions. Is that right? No, I was just laying the groundwork with the philosophical example of me being pro-life and people being entitled to my money. The reason I have a an objection to this and why it goes against what I believe is, and now in fairness, what you said is slightly different than the way it was portrayed in the book. How this all came about in your book was you were talking about Donald Trump's executive order in his last days in office where he signed the fair access to financial services. And my objection to that and where I I become very unpopular is, and I say the same thing to people on both sides of the aisle is, where's that power in Article 2? Now, then some people will respond and they'll say, well, okay, so would you be okay with if it was legislation and go through the legislation process? And my answer is, well, where's that power in Article 1, Section 8? Because you're consti- I'm a constitutionalist. Right or wrong, I'm a constitutionalist. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution has 18 clauses of power. Where is that? For me, the way you said it was, this is a state level that you're getting involved as, at, you know, with the state legislators, the state senators, and then you can, you know, get it there, and then they can pass it or they cannot pass it. That's a different issue for me because the way I look at it, and it's a very simplistic view, but is is the presidency has no power, Congress is limited by Article One, Section Eight, and then the states are kind of operate free reign. It's up to their state constitution, and then you can decide where the power is, how much they can do. Is it is it does it pass the state constitution sniff test, which is different from from state to state? So that's the way I look at it. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a fair uh, point to bring up. It's a fair question to ask. One of the challenges with this particular example is, so this was a uh, something put into place by the Trump administration through the OCC, that's the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, that has been enacted, that agency has been granted these sort of broad powers by Congress when they created it, right? And Congress would have the authority to regulate interstate commerce, So the argument that they would make is that Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. Congress creates the OCC and gives them broad powers to do that in this in in a sort of specific realm. They are able to do that through that indirect way. Now, I would argue that Congress shouldn't do that, that they should never give away those broad powers. But it does become complicated when they write laws in these sort of vague, broad ways that give sweeping authority to the CDC or to the OCC or to these various agencies that they create. Uh, can Congress even do that? Do they even have the ability to give away their power like that to a federal, an executive agency branch? Uh, you know, that's that. I I, I, I understand you're, you're, <laughs> you're shaking your head. No. And you know what? There are a lot of people who I think would make a very good argument that they don't have that right to give that away. Uh, others would say that they can, that they have the ability to vest it. In my personal opinion, I would prefer to avoid the whole conversation in that sense, not the conversation we're having, but to avoid that problem entirely by just having Congress write a law that does what the OCC would do under its authority to regulate interstate commerce 
that's how I would do it. And then I would rather have states enact these laws at the state level when you're talking about institutions that only exist within the state. So state chartered banks and things like that, uh, because I don't think the federal government should be regulating um, banks that only exist in one state because it's not interstate commerce. So I think that there's a way to make it work that fits in with your concern about the constitution. Should the, should, you know, I think there's way too much executive authority in the president. I think there's Congress has just handed it over to the president. State legislatures did the same thing to governors, which is why we had so many crazy COVID stuff happening uh, is because they just gave all this power over to the governor to do these things in emergencies. I think all of that is bad. And I would prefer to see Congress take the reins and make these decisions on its own. And there actually was a law, a bill introduced into Congress. I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, but it was introduced by a guy named Kevin Kramer, who's out of North Dakota, I believe, a U.S. senator. And it was uh, co-sponsored by a whole bunch of different people in the Senate. I think Ted Cruz may have been one of the co-sponsors on the bill that would have effectively made uh, the, the OCC rule that Trump put into place that Biden immediately took out when he came into power within the first like week of being in office that would make that the law through Congress. And I would much rather see that happen than through the executive branch. So um, I'm not entirely sure if it's unconstitutional per se. Uh, I don't know if I'd be willing to go quite that far, but I would be open to being persuaded on that because I do think it's bad and it probably is not what they originally intended, which always makes me a little nervous. Oh, I would definitely argue that is not what they intended, but at least what we need to have is start having these discussions and having debates and not having things like MMT just come in and no one discusses it. No one knows exactly what it is. And one of the things people like me need to do, especially if you're a constitutionalist, is we need to start making the case for the constitution because one of the reasons we're here today in the facing the tyranny that we do is, is that the argument of, well, we have to do something. Like, I've got people who come to me say, you know, when I say about the Constitution and I, you know, I criticize different presidential powers or Congress doing stuff. I'm like, but John, you, you're talking about the Great Reset. It's this great tyranny. You're talking about potentially the worst tyranny we have faced and the biggest threat. Surely we have to do something. And I'm like, yes, we have to. We, we must act. We must stop the Great Reset. But we must do it in a constitutional way. Because for better or worse, who I am as a person is I treat the Constitution like I treat the Bible. It's not a pick and mix. You know, it's easy as a Christian to read parts of the Bible and kind of go, you know, I think Jesus is, is calling me out on my sin here. You know, I'm just going to cast that part of the Bible aside. What we need to do is it's all or nothing. And for me, the Constitution and what's happened to the Constitution is over the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, is there's been slow erosions of, well, we'll just take this little power, or we'll take this little power. And the power has become so centralized that you now look at DC in 2022 and you have no idea what's going on. So for me, it's what we need to do is get back to the Constitution and get back to solutions to all the problems we face, not at a D.C. level, not at a presidential level, not an executive order level, but at the state level. I think that's I know I, I think that's a fair I think that's a fair criticism. And I think at the time that we uh, put that together, I think, honestly, it was just one of these things where we weren't really sure what the best approach would be going forward. And there was a lot of debate about how to make that happen. And since we put the book together and it's been published, 
we focused far more on state laws as opposed to state regular uh, federal regulations or even state regulations. We don't want that either. We want an actual state law passed in order to do that. Um, and I would argue that under the 10th amendment, that's obviously something that they could do. And I think that, um, ideally you would have a, a federal law that regulates at least part of this through the interstate commerce thing. That would be my preference. And again, not even for individuals, you know, if it, if an individual wants to give a loan for someone to start a business, they can base it on whatever they want. But if you're going to be a publicly traded corporation that gets special tax benefits, special tax rates, has um, uh, all sorts of special regulations that you have to have, has limited liability, which is a benefit to corporations that's given to them by government. Uh, in the case of social media companies, the ability to not be uh, sued for libel and things like that, even though you're allowing these things to exist on your platforms and you may even know that it's existing and you're still allowing it to exist. The only reason you can't get sued for that is because there's special federal protections under Section 230 of the of the of the Communications Decency Act. Is the only reason why you're allowed to do that. There's all sorts of special benefits given to these corporations. In my opinion, they should all be gone. In which case, we would have a free market. And we wouldn't need any of these regulations. But we need to regulate it in the right way. That actually segues into the next solution that you are doing with Heartland and. This this is one of the solutions I really like because, you know, I'm I'm big on talking about why America is exceptionally unique nation. And one of the things I think we need to do if we want to solve the Great Reset, but also a lot of other problems is is play to our strengths, but also play to America's strengths. And that is changing our priorities in politics. You know, let me give you an example of propaganda that I hear from people in both sides of the aisle in your country when people will say, Well, the president is the most powerful man in the world. Really? Go read Article 2 and then explain to me how they're more powerful than Congress or how they're more powerful than states. That's the problem. Or how they're more powerful than other leaders. I get the presidency is important. I get Congress and senators are important. But the advantage to America, the one thing that makes America unique and exceptional of many reasons, but on political level, is that your power is not centralized at the top. Every other nation centralized the power in a key figure or a key parliament somewhere else. Whether that's a king, whether it's a, a, t a prime minister, in Ireland we call them a Taoiseach, whether it's a grand supreme leader, whether it's an Ayatollah, regardless of the title, the power is centralized at the top and there's a lot of power in the parliament and that those closest to the people have very little power and very little influence. America is the exact opposite and makes you unique and exceptional because you said, no, there isn't much centralized power. The power belongs to the states, federalism. Can you explain to everyone what you at Heartland are doing to talk about the Great Reset and how you're solving these problems at a state level? Yeah, so one of the most incredible things about this whole experience was when we put the book out, we weren't exactly sure what the reaction was going to be. Uh, we figured that Glenn's audience would like it and they do. Uh, it was the number one best-selling book in America the week it came out. Um, so it was a huge, huge thing. We sold out of every copy we had in 48 hours. It was a huge success. We've gone through multiple print runs already. We're sold out right now. Last I checked on Amazon. So you can't even buy a physical copy of it right now, but it's, um, the reaction from state lawmakers was the thing that really took us by surprise. Uh, state lawmakers from all across the country, when they found out about what was going on, 
reached out to us at the Heartland Institute, reached out to Glenn Beck and said, we want to do something about this. We want to put some sort of protection in place that makes sure that these banks and financial institutions are not using social credit scores and things like that to discriminate against people and not using it to silence free speech or not working hand in hand with government to do the bidding of government. How do we go about doing that? And what arose from that was this very sudden movement, which does not happen at the in politics at all, but especially at the state level, to enact uh, rules that would make that impossible, uh, to make it so that financial institutions and, and banks have to base the decisions that they make on financial services, loans, things like that, checking accounts, all of that stuff, purely on um, business economic reasons, um, not based on something you may have said on social media or uh, who you voted for. I mean, most people don't realize this, but in, in every state of this country, for the most part, as far as I know, in every single state, if a bank, if all the banks got together and said, we're not giving loans to people who voted for Donald Trump, they could do that. And so are we going to allow that to happen? What became the question for a lot of state lawmakers, they said, no, we need to do something to stop it. So in 20 something states, I think right now we're around 29, 30 states, lawmakers have reached out to us. They've worked on legislation in many states. Bills have actually been introduced. Um, it's happened very, very quickly uh, and probably too quickly <laughs> because, because what's happened is uh, there's been a lot of confusion among state lawmakers who don't understand what the Great Reset is. Uh, Republicans are the ones standing in the way of this in a lot of cases. There's usually a small minority of Republicans who think to themselves, I don't know if I like the idea of regulations and you want to put rules into place that are regulating businesses. We don't want that. And it slowed the process down. Uh, without a doubt, lobbyists, an army of banking lobbyists have descended on all of these states. Sometimes we've had people go to testify at hearings for bills, and there have been a dozen lobbyists from banks at some small little state hearing over this bill. So, I mean, we're getting massive, massive pushback from the financial services industry that because they want to use this system to control people. At least that's our theory. They say they don't want frivolous lawsuits, which is the reason they're so opposed to it. But I don't buy it uh, because are they really worried that, you know, the multi-billion dollar bank is going to get sued by, you know, some guy with $2,000 that was denied a loan for a uh, you know, $15,000 car. I don't think so. So there is this movement at the state level. It's going to take some time to get laws actually in place. But I do think that there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of state lawmakers all across the country that are working toward this goal. And I do think given enough time, we're going to see some rules put into place that make much of the Great Reset effectively impossible to implement. Not all of it, but much of it. Because if you can't use the financial services arm to punish people, then the ESG part of it is only relevant for certain groups, but not for others, especially big corporations and Wall Street. It still would be there, but it wouldn't be anywhere near it as impactful on individual people. And so really, we're trying very hard to protect the individual by convincing lawmakers that there's something that needs to be done on this um, so that you don't have these public-private partnerships where banks and uh, other financial services companies are doing the bidding of, of government and left-wing activists, all while getting rich in the process. 
So if anyone's listening to this and is like, this is a really good idea, I want to get involved, I want to talk to my state legislator, I want to talk to my state senator, I, I want to get them some more information, is there anywhere they can go, Justin, to, to get more information on the Great Reset that they can pass on and that they can maybe potentially sign up there, you know, their legislator can sign up to, you know, get involved and maybe, you know, talk to you about passing some bills? Is there anywhere they can go to get more information? Yeah, we, we have we have a ton of resources available for for people that are designed specifically for state lawmakers. They're available for for free, well put together, very well researched, um, have gotten lots of great feedback from dozens of state lawmakers. We've already shared them with you can go to heartland.org and right on the front page, there's a big banner sort of toward the top that says stopping ESG. And um, you can click on that and there'll be all sorts of resources that people can draw from and share freely uh, if they're interested. They can also email us at stopesg at heartland.org, uh, stopesg at heartland.org if they want to learn how they can get involved. Uh, although for the most part, what we do with especially just regular folks is we direct them to that other <laughs> part of the website where they can get access to these resources. But if there are any lawmakers listening, state lawmakers, that's please email us. And we'll be happy to help you walk through this process and, and show you what has worked so far and what hasn't worked and how we can get something in place uh, to stop the spread of ESG and social credit scores and the Great Reset. And just for anyone who's really in contact with their local state rep or state senator, um, the Heartland Institute are doing special training uh, education on the ESG um, in May down in Dallas. So is that the same email address if, if someone really wants to go to it or is really interested in learning more? Is it the same email address, Justin? Yeah. Stop ESG at heartland.org. Reach out to us. And, um, you know, we're probably going to do several meetings, possibly in various parts of the country to try to educate state lawmakers about what's going on with this, to roll out model legislation so that we can do something about this in the long run. Uh, but really we're, we're, we at Heartland are working hand in hand with lawmakers to help them understand how the, the best tactics, the best strategies uh, to, to get rid of this ESG system uh, as best we can. And obviously the most constitutional way that we can, we can't just wholesale ban it, but we can make it so that it's not used as a discriminatory tool uh, of a discriminatory rule of the left. And that's what we're trying to do. So yes, stop ESG at heartland.org if anyone is interested in learning more about that. You know, there really are a lot of solutions to this great reset, Justin. The problem I see, firstly, is that we need to address our mindset. You know, I first traveled to America in the early 90s. I can never find the exact date. I traveled to Clearwater, Florida to spend time with my great aunt. And honestly, the first thing I fell in love with in your country was your people. You know, you're so optimistic, or you were, you know, you, you never saw obstacles, you never saw problems, you only saw solutions and opportunities. You know, I always say this quick story, you know, back in 1963, when it was President JFK, and he got behind a podium and gave that speech where he said, by the end of this decade, America's going to the moon. Now, I base this on, it is largely my opinion, but it's based on facts. That can only happen in America. You say that speech in any other country, it just doesn't happen. The, the people who think the guy is crazy, 
you know, that it's just so unrealistic. It's just never going to happen. You know, why would you ever want to go to the moon? Do you know how far that is? And you, they'd see all the problems. Americans, you might have saw the problems. You mightn't have been enthusiastic about it at the start. But by the end of the decade, you went, yeah, we're going to the moon. Why? Because we're an American and we can. There is nothing to stop us. And I think unless we start addressing our opportunities right now, because if we start continue to see problems, and this is what I've seen over the last couple of years and five, ten years, you're not optimistic as a people anymore. You're, you tend to talk about, you know, you don't talk about opportunities or advancement. You tend to think about all how tyrannical the government is, and that's something we should address. But it's always said in such a way of, well, you know, like America's best days are behind her, or we want to give up, or we can't overcome this, that this is some obstacle. So I want to talk to you about some solutions just on the business side of it. Do you agree we're heading towards a cashless society? A cashless society? Yes, oh, sir. yes. Very soon. When you say very soon, do you, obviously, in your opinion, do you have a timeline that you'd like to share with us? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I could see it. I could see it in two years, possibly, too. I mean, but I think within five years, I would say for sure, almost certainly, almost 100% within five years. But it could be even even quicker than that. I actually can see an opportunity where it actually happens a lot quicker than that. My personal prediction is it's going to happen by January next year, purely from the point of view of what I see politically right now is the Democrats are in a really bad shape. And I see them getting blown out unless the Republicans, of course, uh, grab defeat from the jaws of victory, um, which never rule out. And you have a bloodbath in November. And then Biden technically becomes kind of a lame duck president for the next two years. And if you remember the executive order that he signed a couple of months ago, which Glenn has done a lot of great work on highlighting on cryptocurrencies, I believe that's going to come into effect between November, uh, the November elections and January when the new Congress comes in. And I think you can see a lot of um, cash to society. You won't be 100%. There'll still be some remnants of cash. But because of MMT, because of the control they want, because of the Great Reset, I believe I wouldn't be shocked to see it coming in, coming in and be 90% in effect by January. Oh, I agree. The, the executive order, the executive order about cryptocurrency and uh, digital assets and things like that, which was released in March, I believe, from the White House, it specifically says in it, that it is it requires that the attorney general and the treasurer and uh, somebody else to work on a, 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 a the secretary of the treasury yeah and and the, someone at the the chairman of the Fed that they work on a proposal an actual legislative proposal for a central bank digital currency a new currency a new digital dollar within seven months they have to they have to give it to the president with seven months is october that's right before the election so i agree with i actually agree with your timeline exactly right the only difference is i don't think that it gets rolled out for a couple of years even after they pass it i don't think it actually goes into effect it'll it'll be there and they'll be working on it and whatever but i don't know if they'll actually start rolling it out until at least another couple of years afterwards but the law actually being passed yeah 100% that could happen within 12 months from now yeah i think they need it a lot sooner because i think they know they're losing and i think they they know they're in trouble in 2022 and i think they know they're in trouble in 2024 but these are all political reasons and i don't want to get too much into the weeds with that the reason i asked you about a cashless society was because of the opportunity that we have we are going to a cashless society we both agree on that and you're going to have what they're calling a digital dollar of some description 
the opportunity that we have and the mindset and the optimism that we need to have is that we don't have to accept the digital dollar. Now, there's platforms out there that while they're not perfect, we have so much groundwork done already. We have cryptocurrency where we can buy stuff with cryptocurrency, we can sell stuff with cryptocurrency, we can lend businesses money through cryptocurrency, through things like Bitcoin, Iridium, Cardano, uh, Binance Coin, whichever one is your personal favorite. I know there's a lot of, you know, people have, you know, massive of their favorite cryptocurrency. But the one thing I think we need to get back to is the, the opportunity and the mindset to kind of go, you know, it's not like, hey, they're going to bring this digital dollar. And then what we need to do is kind of react to it and say, oh, my God, we need the great minds and we need to create something where because their digital dollar is not going to be backed by anything substantial. It's not going to be backed by gold or silver or cryptocurrency or nothing. It's literally going to be a computer algorithm that the government is going to control and it's going to control how much money you have and it can take it as quickly as they give it to you and um, where they'll give it to you by benefits and if you act the way they want you to we don't have to sit around a room and say go oh my god what are we going to do how can we make freedom cool again we have assets in cryptocurrency and i'm not saying which one is the best i have my own personal favorites but it's up to the people to decide but we have all this groundwork bitcoin is over 10 years old we've seen what's good and what's bad what needs to be improved and we have these opportunities that we need to get back to and this is a massive opportunity for business yeah I think that's a, that's a huge, it's a huge undertaking, but I do think that it's one of those interesting things where a lot of people have latched onto it. I mean, there are, and not conservatives or whatever, there's just a lot of people who believe in the concept of it because it makes a lot of sense. It makes a heck of a lot more sense than what we're seeing from the Fed and what we're going to see from the Fed when they inevitably roll out some sort of digital dollar, assuming they can get that through Congress. Um, the idea that you have something that is not centrally controlled, a currency that is not centrally controlled, that cannot easily be manipulated because it's on blockchain technology, which is decentralized, very hard to manipulate that ledger after the fact. And that has a, in the case of not all cryptocurrencies have this, but can have a limited supply or a limited increase in the supply, depending on how it's designed. Um, the idea that you would have that and then it could be rolled out very quickly, almost instantaneously. I mean, if we really wanted to, we could run the entire economy on that tomorrow, pretty much. Uh, the infrastructure is mostly there. It's all just about the fees and all of that that are the problem right now. Uh, but those things can be solved and probably will be solved. I think convincing people that that's a better idea than just giving the Fed the ability to print as much money as they want whenever they feel like it and everything else, I think is actually not hard to do. I just think it's a matter of getting people to understand what cryptocurrency is and what it isn't. And I think that most people still have no clue what it is. And that it's really just a, an education campaign at this point uh, to get people to understand it. And the truth, the funny thing is, I don't even know that you need to convince people a lot because most people don't know how money works in general. They don't know how the lending system works. They don't know how the Fed works. They don't even know what the Fed is. Most people probably think the Fed is a government agency. They don't know how, how it was created. They don't know anything about it and they don't care. All they care about is that it works when they need it to work. So if you could just put it into action and, and people start using it and people start accepting it and it's working okay, I think that'd be fine. One of the big things that probably needs to happen for it is it needs to get to the point where it's not so volatile. 
uh, the value in the, of it relative to the dollar is still very, very volatile for all cryptocurrencies. And you know, you could have Bitcoin could go up 20% one day or you know, over a period of time, especially over six or seven months, Bitcoin and, and not just Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the big uh, cryptocurrencies can vary dramatically. And that's too scary for people. I would, I would argue that if Bitcoin was relatively stable, even right now in terms of price, it would probably already be widely adopted. Everyone would probably be using it. The problem is there's still lots of fluctuation. Now, once you get widespread adoption, that price fluctuation isn't going to happen anymore. Um, the reason there is such wild price swings is because there's so much speculation and there's not that many users relative to the larger economy and everything else. But as more and more people adopt it, the price swings will become, it'll be normal and it won't be so scary for people and it will be easy to use it. I actually have a Coinbase card now, uh, like Visa card, and I already use that to make purchases on a day-to-day basis and nobody knows the difference. So it's it's not like you can't use it. You can. It's just, can you can you use it and be sure that your value is not going to go down 15% tomorrow? That's that's the issue. Once we get that resolved, I think people will start adopting it. Absolutely. Like Bitcoin and, and things like Iridium always get the attention, but there's also what they call stable coins, like, you know, like Tether or USD coin. So there are alternatives. The biggest thing for me is I'm not trying to promote one is the answer and saying Bitcoin is the answer or Iridium is the answer. What I'm trying to do is just to highlight that we don't, it's not like, you know, a fait accompli. It's not like, well, they're going to do this digital dollar. We have no options. The government grows, tyranny grows, and we just are dumb. We have opportunities and we have some type of, you know, alternative out there. We just need to focus on it and see the opportunity and grow it, which leads me to the next point. I want to talk to you from a business point of view. We have so much opportunities in business to with the Great Recess. And one of the things I'd love to know is how do you think this happens in the sense of, Every business, whether you're, you know, an insurance, whether you're a bank, whether you're a mom and pop store, whether you're in telecommunications, regardless of what you are, you're all looking for one thing, and that's your USP. What that is, is your unique selling point. Why should I do business with you over another company? And we're all trying to find what our USP is, and we're all trying to find, you know, to maximize it so we can get, you know, money into our companies, so we can grow, so we can offer more USPs, more products, more services, and then we grow as a company. The Great Reset provides a massive USP. You know, let's just focus on banking because we've spoken a lot about it throughout the, the last week's show and this week's show, and, you know, with currency. You know, there's obviously all these big banks are behind it, you know, Bank of America. You know, I'm in Oklahoma. There's a state bank here called RCB Bank. They're in Oklahoma and Kansas, and that's it. No other states. What do we have to do to get to an opportunity where, you know, like a bank like, you know, RCB or other banks come out and just say, are you SP? We're not Bank of America. We're not City. We're not JP Morgan. We're not into the Great Reset. We're on to, we want to give you the best product and services possible. We're going to give you the best banking. We're going to give you the best online banking. We're going to offer you the products, you know, loans, mortgages, whatever they decide to offer, if they decide to offer life insurance. But our USP is we're not part of the Great Reset. We don't want to control you. We don't want to spy on you. Because the sad thing is, if you just break it down on political lines, and obviously this is very simplistic, but 
the right are supposed to be the the free market the capitalists and the left are the people who believe in socialism and government and and at times communism we're getting out capitalized or out free marketed or out innovated by the left because of cronyism we need to start looking at this as an opportunity how do we get to that point yeah I think that the first thing that has to be done is there has to be a groundswell of support from regular people demanding that this is what there has to be a signal here, a market signal that says we don't want anything to do with this. I just want to change course now slightly, go away from business and just get more into the constitution, the kind of political side of things. You know, one of the things you mentioned and we spoke about briefly earlier on was Article 5. I'm a big supporter of Article 5 for several reasons. One, because of the constitution. Um, I believe if you have a problem with the constitution, it doesn't make you the enemy. It just means, okay, let's have a conversation and potentially amend the constitution. It's been done several times. I, you know, depending on the, the, the article or the argument or what you're arguing for or advocating for, you know, I'll take a position on what the founders wanted and if it's consistent with what, you know, your founders described as nature's law and nature's God and whether it's more freedom or tyrannical. But, you know, this movement of Article 5 of amending the Constitution is at the state level. You know, the Constitution has been amended, but every time it's been done at D.C., the beauty of America and one of the reasons you're an exceptional nation and unique nation is because your power is not centralized in, you know, a D.C. or, a, you know, a figurehead or a parliament. Your power is in the states. So anytime we can get the states involved, I'm always going to be a big supporter of it because that is where the real power lies. What do you think has happened to the Article 5 movement? Because obviously it gained steam under Barack Obama, and then it's kind of lost steam, it seems, over the last couple of years. And also, is there a way of maybe killing two birds at one stone of, you know, reigniting the Article 5 movement and kind of linking what you're doing at Heartland, meeting with these state reps? Yeah, our Article 5 of the Constitution allows for amendments to the Constitution that don't require approval from Congress. So you can actually create an amendment to the Constitution through state legislatures. You just need, uh, I think it's two-thirds of state legislatures need to agree on a constitutional amendment, and then you need the ratification process afterwards. But it can all be done through state legislatures. You actually don't need Congress in order to do an amendment. It's never been done before, not because it's not possible, but because it's harder to do and people don't know about it. I mean, honestly, I think the main thing on the right is I don't think there are enough people with a big microphone talking about Article 5 and why it's important. I've actually seen various Article 5 groups. There's there's several big groups that have been pushing for Article 5 for a long time. Harlan's been involved in that before, sometimes more intensely than other times, just depending on different things. Um, but I've seen them their list of endorsements and their list of endorsements are incredible. I mean, they have endorsements from every major political figure you can think of a lot of times, every major big media personality you can think of, but nobody actually talks about it or makes it an issue, right? So they're willing to endorse it and say, yeah, I would love an Article 5 convention, but then do they go out and talk about what it is? Do they tell anybody? Do they make it a big issue? No, and that's the thing. The people actually do have the ability to create a balanced budget amendment, for example, or to 
rewrite the rules so that there are term limits or there are various other things that people, basically everyone agrees. I mean, term limits is one of those things where like 80% of America wants term limits for members of Congress. It's like some crazy number. I don't know it off the top of my head, but it's like 80%, 70, 80%, something like that. You see, that's actually one of the problems with polling. Because if you look at just that stat, which always gets thrown around, and it's true, you know, people at time after time, people are polled, you know, do you support term limits? And the number is crazy high, yes. But if you actually dig deeper into the poll, like the second question or the third question is usually, do you still support term limits if it means getting rid of your local representative or your senator? And the number always plummets. You see, the problem isn't my representative or my senator. My vote is good. It's everyone else is the problem. Every other representative is the problem, not mine. Yeah, I, well, I, that is 100% true. Everybody, and again, and, and I just think it, it comes down to so many things, right? But the biggest overarching theme is just people need to start taking this stuff seriously. And, and that's the thing. A lot of people don't. They don't take it seriously. They, 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 even the people who are politically active, which is really the crazy thing, they care about what is happening in Washington. They'll watch t- cable news every day. They will obsess and know every detail of every big scandal that is happening in Washington on a daily basis. But they have no interest or knowledge about any of the things that we've talked about today. None of those things actually matter all that much, really. You know, there will always be more fights in Washington. There will always be more scandals. There will always be some horrible bill being proposed. But what are you doing on a local level to make a difference? What are you doing to move the ball forward on some of the things that we talked about today? Most people, even the politically active ones, even the big time individual liberty people are not doing any of that. And that is a huge problem. We have to reorient our way of thinking um, so that we are thinking community first we're thinking about our we're thinking about our local communities we're thinking about we're conscious of who we're giving our money to we're conscious of our time and energy we're not obsessing over every single thing that happens in Washington every big story and cable news that we're thinking instead about how to make these changes real at a local and state level and if we did that you know republicans control and i have a lot of problem with republicans but republicans are in my opinion, better than Democrats, and they control most states. Yet most states have all of these systemic problems that we talked about. Why? Why can't we at least fix those places? You know, it's 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 all about will. It's all about will of regular people. They've got to change their thinking so that they're focused on the local and state level first, and they worry about Washington after the fact. And until we do that, which I don't know culturally if we're anywhere near to that level, but until we start thinking about that, um, I don't know if we're going to see the kind of changes that we need to see. You know, just a little story just to prove your point there, Justin. So I'm, I'm out speaking and I'm, you know, speaking to all these different groups around the country. And I, one of the things I always do at the end of my presentation is because I'm usually on last is I'll hang around after the meeting because I love meeting people, love talking to people, you know, love hearing their stories on the ground or sometimes they have issues they disagree with me on and, you know, it leads to a back and forth and it's just a lot of fun and I love, I love, you know, the dialogue and discussion and talking about ideas. So I'm at this meeting and someone comes up to me and says, you got to meet this person. He's like a mover and shaker. He knows a lot of people in D.C. You know, he's very politically active. And so I'm like, sure, absolutely. Let's, you know, let's have a chat. And 
we discussed a lot of different issues and the guy's knowledge was truly breathtaking. Like it was unbelievable. You know, he could name every position in the cabinet, who they were, you know, who was the person before them. Like he could name all the people in the cabinet probably under Trump. And we just had a, you know, big conversation about, you know, things like the Great Reset and, you know, Biden and inflation and the economy, just a load of different issues. And we agreed on some, we disagreed on others. But at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, I got to ask this guy a question. I was like, so who's your state rep? Hadn't got a clue. Just looked at me like, uh, I was like, you know, do you do anything at the state level? And again, just a look of no, just total blankness. And I'm like, this is the thing we need to do to to change the, the system. You know, like, you know, I always say this to people, like, imagine, and I'm not endorsing this or supporting this guy, I'm just stating a fact, you know, even under this economy, you know, can you imagine how different the country would feel if you had like 10 Ron DeSantis's? You know, in, in, in Florida, in Texas, in Alabama, in Oklahoma, in Mississippi, in Louisiana, you know, all these southern states. If you had 10 Ron DeSantis's, can you imagine how much more optimism there there would be in the country? There would be much more of a fight. There would be much more hope. We have so many answers at the state level. We're just not doing it. And we're not using our mindset. We're so focused, as you say, on the D.C. and on the media and on all that stuff. And we need to start looking closer to home. Which brings me to the next point. You know, we need to be optimistic and understand how much we can change the world. And I'll just talk about one person, Elon Musk. He's changed the narrative over the last month or two months with his negotiations to buy Twitter. Now, obviously, it's official. He's buying Twitter because, you know, he's put in that offer and the board have actually accepted it. And he looks like he's going to be the owner of Twitter. One of the things that frustrates me is the people on the right, quote-unquote, let's use the left-right divide, we're supposed to be the capitalists. We're supposed to be the rich. They call us the millionaires and billionaires, but yet we don't seem to put our money where our mouth is. Why does it take Elon Musk to buy Twitter? You know, you use let's use the guy on the left that's on your book, George Soros, Mr. Spooky Dude. He has no problem time and time again putting his money where his mouth is. You can have a district attorney running in like some district in California who's like 2% in the poll and he'll write a check for them. You know, he'll write a check to all these different organizations. Whether they have a chance of winning or not, he will do it. He will back all these different sheriffs and different law enforcement who have no chance of winning, it seems, at the outset. And he'll put his money where his mouth is. Why don't we do that on the rice? Yeah, that, I mean... One of my biggest frustrations uh, for many years now has been that there is all sorts of money that exists ideologically on the right. Pe- a lot of people who actually really truly believe in the cause of liberty and everything else, and they never seem to put their money in the right places ever, 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 ever. The classic example I like to use is um, is Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush ran for for, uh, president in 2016. He raised $100 million, $100 million. His super, his pack, that includes his super PAC and all that stuff, 100 million. The guy had no chance of winning the Republican primary. He had no chance of winning the presidency if he had won the Republican primary, but somehow he managed to convince a bunch of rich people to give him $100 million. Now, that is everything wrong with the right. There is so much money that exists and it often ends up in campaigns for one thing, which I understand there's value in that for sure. But 
they they don't put any money into infrastructure and institutions and the, the the ways that the left does. The left is constantly building institutions, infrastructure, activist groups, all of that. The right has been way behind the eight ball on that for years and years and years. And for and I don't know why. I mean, why is it that the left are buying up big media outlets and they do these kinds of things, but the right never does that? I don't know. I don't. I don't know why. I, I, I think if I had to, if I had to sort of make a guess, someone put a gun to my head and said, "Why is this happening?" I would say it probably has something to do with the fact that the really wealthy people on the right are oftentimes still establishment people who live in establishment circles. They live in DC, they live that world and they don't see what regular people see and that the party has evolved over time. The right has evolved over time to become much more main street focused, much more individual liberty focused and kind of getting back to its roots. But the establishment where all the money is, is still hanging out with DC in this in DC with the same crowd that it always has. And that's why they're giving their money to Jeb Bush and they're not really thinking how regular people are thinking and they don't have an activist mindset. They have sort of a big business, big corporation, big bank kind of mindset. And I think what we need is to think more like activists and more like people who want to reform local and state institutions and less like people who want to just try to fix Washington. The amazing thing about Washington is Washington is designed, the the federal system is designed to not accomplish very much. That's the point. That's the goal. They set it up Mm -hmm. so that it wouldn't do all that much. And that when it would do something, it required lots of political will in order to get it done because it had to be really important. That was how they set it up. Is it a surprise then that nothing gets done in Washington? No, that's why we set it up that way. Of course, nothing gets done in Washington. That's why states exist. It's much easier to get things done at the state level. And yet nobody wants to do that because it's sexier to do it in Washington. The media is all focused in Washington and the money is all in Washington and DC and Boston and LA and places like that. And so we have to, the big money people actually, I think, have the biggest room to grow on the right. They need to totally change their way of thinking. If they really want to make a difference in the world, you can't give your money to Jeb Bush. That should be obvious. You need to in fact you need to invest in institutions, you need to invest in conservative activism, education, state and local representation, things like that. Uh, building our own infrastructure on the right, supporting free speech and sort of the you know the fundamentals of of what we think of as pro liberty movement. Until that happens, I, I don't know. We're always going to be beat by these big money leftists who are much better at putting their money into their causes. So last question, and I don't want you to feel any additional pressure on this one, that this is the last thing people will hear from you, that this is the, the, you know, this is the solution show, this is the happy show, this is the show that we can do anything because this is America. So I don't want you to feel any of that pressure. But this is the go-home question, Justin. Do we turn this around? (laughs) Uh, I think we're at an inflection point. Do I think we turn this around? I'm going to say yes. I do. I think that, and the reason why is because I think fundamentally, most Americans don't want it. It's not that they want it and they've been fooled into thinking that they want, they don't even know what's happening in most cases. 
And so I think if they understand what's going on, if they could just learn about it and understand that the consolidation of wealth and power is happening at a scale we've never seen before, it's all amongst elites. It's an internationalist group of people who really aren't, they don't care about you. They don't care about you as an individual. They don't care about you and your family. They don't care about your local community. They're focused on their big, broad, international, United Nations type dreams. I think if we can, under, if we can get people to understand that the threat is real, that it's, it's all out in the open, you can read the quotes for yourself and see it for yourself, uh, and that there are solutions. I do think that people will adopt it. It's just a matter of whether they hear it or not. So I think as the word spreads, look, two years ago, almost nobody was talking about this. Today, lots of people are talking about it. We've made progress, and I think that there's enough time. Some people I know who are you know very concerned about this would say there isn't enough time. Some people who you know who are very concerned about this but don't think you have enough time. That sounds like a catastrophist. Are you talking about anyone in particular like maybe, oh, I don't know, just spitballing here, your co-author and my boss? Glenn Beck and I have had this conversation in his office many times. And I have heard Glenn very pessimistic. And I have heard Glenn very optimistic. And I understand because I vacillate back and forth between those two things too. It is very, this is, this is one of the biggest threats America has ever been up against because of how the system is set up, how this is working, the money and everything behind it. Um, but it is possible to turn things around. I really truly believe that. And I will give you one last thing before we totally wrap it up. If you were living in America in the 1930s, late 1930s, especially early 1940s, when Franklin Roosevelt was a god and he was ramming things through that were obviously unconstitutional. And when the Supreme Court started pushing back, he threatened to stack the Supreme Court with his own justices. And so they did whatever he wanted. And he was wildly popular and he won numerous elections in a row. And you had the birth of the Fed and you had the destruction of the of of state legislatures choosing the senators and it became a direct election thing and everyone who was involved in that understood how serious that was and you had japanese internment camps and things like that going on and nazi germany and a war in japan and all of these things happening that happened in, in the great depression in the 1930s and 40s you would be pretty pessimistic that there was probably not a great likelihood that we come out of that as a free society and yet I would argue that we ended up moving in a much freer direction from that point. It, and we've now gone back in the other direction again. The pendulum has swung back toward the 1930s and the progressive era. But I would argue that if you were to go back in those days with the Supreme Court that they had back then and everything else, you would be pretty pessimistic. But things turned around despite that. So I do believe that it is possible. We just have to get, we have to reorient ourselves uh, and we have to refocus and recommit ourselves to the right causes. But I do think that it's possible. And we have the luxury that they didn't have back then of having shows like this, of having alternative media outlets, of having the internet and the decentralization of information and all of that. They didn't have any of that back then. So it would have been very hard to push back against those kinds of things when all you had was radio and then in the 1950s and 60s, all you had was three television stations. And that's how everybody got their news, basically. 
How do you get the word out back then? Everything was was centralized, you know? Now we have way more channels to get out information, to organize, to recommit ourselves to these things, to learn history. You, anyone at any time can go on the internet and learn just about anything they want. You couldn't do that back then. So I have, there are, there are a lot of reasons to believe we're actually in a better situation today than we were in the 1940s or the 1930s at certain periods of time when it, when Roosevelt looked like he'd be president forever. And he was stacking the Supreme court full of people who didn't believe in individual liberty. And you had people literally in concentration camps because they were Japanese. And I mean, that was a really bad time <laughs> and world wars, you know, on two fronts. So I think things can turn around. I, I, I gotta believe that it's possible. Otherwise, what are we doing? Why are we even having this conversation? I completely agree. And I wish as someone, if I had one magic superpower, I would, as an immigrant to this country, I would get Americans to see America the way I do. Yes, you're beaten right now. Yes, you're battered. You're you're kind of down in the dumps. You you believe that you you know it's over, that it's you know, it's 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 a fait accompli. But I wish you could see how exceptional and important your nation is. I wish you could see through my eyes how you could see this world true an Irish guy's eyes where America inspired a 5,000 year leap where we have so much comfort and advancement in technology today you mentioned some of it you know this network um, that we have because of American innovation and creativity that we wouldn't have had before we have so many alternatives we have so many options we just need to start using them and if I wish you could understand that what was at stake because of why I wanted to leave Ireland for 18 years. Ireland's a nice country. It's very nice to visit. The people are nice. But it's a tyrannical socialist government where you have no freedoms, where they're, they're stripped from you just because of any reason that they want, because of an election, because of a disease, because it's just not popular anymore. So that's why America is exceptional. And we need to get back to telling America's story. That's why I've invested my, my life savings last year to do the tour. And now I've cashed in my pension because I need to get out there and talk about America's story before it's too late. Because I can tell you as somebody who goes out and shares America's story with people, there's an appetite for it. People want to know about it. People want to be inspired. People want to do the right thing. But we need to stop demeaning people and shaming people into doing the right thing and encouraging people to do the right thing. And that's what you do, uh, you know, in your work with this great book, you know, with the with the total sex appeal of those three amazing dudes on the front with Joe Biden, George Soros and Klaus Schwab. And I want to thank you for spending all this time with me last week, you know, breaking down what the Great Reset is, how it was going to come about. And then today talking about solutions. Where can people find your work, Justin? They can go to stoppingsocialism.com where I'm editor in chief over there. And uh, they can go to heartland.org and follow me on social media at, at Justin T. Haskins. Please go out and check out Justin's work. Follow him on social media. Buy this book. It's an amazing book. Even if you disagree with some of the things we've discussed, educate yourself. Find where you stand on the issues. Go buy the book, The Great Recess. Go to weforum.org. Go Google it. Go Google the propaganda videos about how you'll eat meat once a week and be happy how you'll own nothing and be happy. They're literally telling you who, it is, who they are and what they want for society. If you don't want that, you need to educate yourself and also make counter-arguments to it. Because the ultimate answer is, who will solve society's great problems? Whether you believe in climate change or not, whether you believe in modern monetary theory or not, whether you believe in freedom or not, the answer is, 
either government will solve them and Joe Biden and Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or the American people will solve them. I will always, always, always bet, not on politics, but on the American people. I will bet on unleashing you. I will bet on your creativity, on your innovation, on your inspiration, because you changed the world. America made the impossible possible. And we salute you, the American people. We finish up this show, this special show, talking to you about solutions. Hopefully you have an extra bit of hope by the sentiments of Tocqueville. America is great because Americans are good. You are the secret sauce to America, and you, by your actions, by your words, and by your deeds, will either solve the Great Reset, or we will fall into a 21st century version of fascism. But I believe in you, and I believe we turn this around. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.